0: What follows is message one of five of the Spring 2015 College Conference, recorded Friday, February 27th, 2015 in Latham Springs, Texas. Conference title is, God's Complete Salvation in Romans. Message title is, The Necessity of God's Judicial Redemption. Okay, praise the Lord. Uh, We're starting tonight a little bit down in number because Satan doesn't want us to gather tonight. Uh, There's a lot of snow and ice north of us, but praise the Lord, the ones who are here made it. Hallelujah. And we hope that others will be trickling in uh, either tonight or tomorrow when the roads melt. Uh, They'll be here tomorrow afternoon. Uh, But nevertheless, we're going to get started. We're in the book of Romans this weekend. Praise the Lord for the book of Romans. Uh, Let's read the title of the entire conference on the front of your cover. Go. Go. God's complete salvation in Romans. Praise the Lord. You know, God's complete salvation is exhibited, it's made known here in the book of Romans. And uh, Romans could be considered the fifth gospel. You know, you have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four so-called gospels. But the book of Romans begins with uh, the words Paul, an apostle separated unto the gospel of God, right? So this book is about the gospel, and uh, <clears throat> the gospel that's presented in Romans, it takes us all the way from sinners to be made sons of God, to constitute the body of Christ, which is expressed on the earth as the local churches. Uh, it takes us from chapter 1 to chapter 16, the whole uh, expansion of God's gospel, right? Right? Uh, and uh, my job tonight is to uh, paint for you the black background that the Apostle Paul pr- presents there in the first few chapters so that we would appreciate uh, the tremendous price that God in Christ paid for us uh, by shedding His blood. That is His redemption. Um, it's called the judicial redemption of Christ. The word judicial actually uh, means legal. It's a legal matter that God accomplished by paying the price. We should be the ones who paid the price. We're the sinners, right? We fell. We got constituted with sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. But praise the Lord, He paid the price for us in a very legal way, uh, in a righteous way, so that no one could ever accuse God, and especially Satan could not accuse God, of doing something unrighteous. So, uh, tonight we're going to spend time getting into the black background. Um, And uh, I hope by the time the evening is over, you will appreciate the redemption of Christ. The redemption of Christ. Um, We're going to start by just mentioning God's purpose. Um, Let me get a piece of chalk here. So God's purpose <clears throat> is very high, it's very glorious, it's wonderful, but <clears throat> very quickly after God's purpose is revealed in the Bible, uh, things begin to go downward and, <clears throat> and downward and downward um, all the way to the bottom, and we'll spend some time here. This is... Uh, something that the Apostle Paul develops starting in the second half of chapter 1 of Romans all the way through chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3 he spends time to show the helpless and hopeless condition of man. But, praise the Lord, we're on our way back up. (laughs) Hallelujah! Uh, On the one hand, we're going all the way down to the bottom to the satanic lie. But praise the Lord, there's a divine truth! And uh, we will be brought back up, hallelujah, by the end of this message to see the process that God went through to carry out uh, His salvation, His complete salvation. Um, And actually, uh, these steps here will be unfolded as the weekend continues. Um, But let's take a look now at outline number one. If you could turn to message one, outline one. Let's read the title together. Go. The necessity of God's judicial redemption. Okay, this whole message, the whole point, is to show us the necessity of God's judicial redemption. Uh, One says God's purpose and man's fall. Well, with God's purpose, we have a man in God's image and likeness to receive God's life and nature. This is too marvelous, brothers and sisters. If we really grasp this uh, from the very beginning, you know, if you want to know what a book is about, you have to read the introduction, right? And the introduction of the Bible is the first two chapters of Genesis. And in those chapters, we see a marvelous picture of what is on God's heart. What does He want to do? And uh, it shows us that man was made in the image and likeness of God. As a vessel to contain God, to receive God's life and God's nature. Um, if we read, let's read Genesis one twenty-six a together. Go. Wow, too marvelous! You know, if you know the previous verses, uh, every other organism was made according to its own kind. The plants were made according to their kind, starting with the the grass and the herbs and the trees. And then uh, the fish were made according to their kind. The birds according to their kind. All the animals on the land according to their kind. But when you come to man, it's like there was a council held in the Godhead. And the, the pronoun is plural. Let us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. Well, uh, this shows us that God desired to have an, an entity that could receive his life, receive his nature, uh, and express him and even represent him, to have dominion. And even you go on a little bit to Genesis chapter 2, and you see that after God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, what did he do? He placed this man in a garden. And in the garden, there were lots of trees, lots of trees that were uh, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And God told the man, he said, you can eat of all the trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then he named two trees in particular. There's one here called the tree of life. And there's another one also in the midst of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, of all the trees you may freely eat, just don't eat of this one right here. So what's the implication? The implication is, eat this tree, right? Eat this tree. There's hundreds of trees, two are named, don't eat this one, eat this one, right? Man, eat this tree. This tree of life, we know from the other parts of the Bible, from the New Testament, that this tree is just God in Christ, available as food for man to take in, to partake of, so that he could have the eternal life, the life of God. At the end of of chapter 3, it said, if man would have stretched forth his hand and taken of that tree and eaten, he would have lived forever. Well, in John 6, the Lord said, if you eat me, you'll live forever. See, there's only one thing that you can eat, that you can partake of, that you can receive into you and live forever. That's Jesus Christ, who is God, available as food for us to take in. So this is the picture. This is God's purpose. Uh, It's astounding. The astounding purpose of God. He doesn't want to just uh, save you from from, uh, the sewer and uh, give you a good life. He wants to give you his eternal divine life. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is his purpose. But B says, man's fall through sin violated God's holiness, righteousness, and glory. In, uh, in Genesis 3, 6, <clears throat> it says that when the... Well, of course, right before this, the serpent comes, right? The snake, Satan comes and begins, he engages Eve in a conversation, and and then he begins to question God. Did God really say this? Uh, And before you know it, um, it says here, "...when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes..." and that the tree was to be desired to make oneself wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And right there, the the satanic nature got imparted into man. You know, the tree of life, we just got through saying, is God, right, available to man as food to take in. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil Uh, If you eat this tree here, the tree of life, you get eternal life. You'll live forever. But if you eat this tree, the result is death. See, God said the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's the tree of death. That's the satanic nature, the sin nature. Even Satan himself got imparted, got injected into man. Man got poisoned by partaking of that tree. He got a poisonous nature. And that caused the fall of man. And this fall, as it says in point B, it violated God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's glory. Let's all read Genesis three twenty-four together. Go. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God could not tolerate the thought that man would live forever in a fallen, sinful condition. So he had to uh, drive the man out of the garden and block the way to the tree of life so that he wouldn't partake and eat at that time. Of course, we know that was a temporary exclusion, right? Excluding man temporarily uh, for about 4,000 years. But anyways, here... What kept man from the tree of life? It says uh, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword. Um, seems like two things, but it's actually three things. There's the cherubim, there's the flame, and there's the sword. And the cherubim signify God's glory, the glory of God. In Ezekiel 9.3, it says, And the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been. And in Hebrews 9.5, it says, And above it, cherubim of glory, overshadowing the propitiation place. Cherubim uh, are associated here with the glory of God. And they signify God's glory. God's glory was there, excluding man from the tree of life. And then the flame signifies God's holiness. In, uh, in Hebrews 12.29, 29. It says, for our God is also a consuming fire. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament. So at least twice the Bible tells us God is a consuming fire. God is holy. Holiness is His nature. Whatever does not correspond to God's holy nature, He consumes. As a consuming fire, He consumes. Uh, If we want to meet the demands of God's holy nature, then we need to be sanctified. That is, to be made holy. Well, stick around. Tomorrow night, the message is on sanctification, being made holy, partaking of the divine nature. Praise the Lord. Uh, But anyways, here, the flame was excluding man from the tree of life, and that signifies God's holiness. And then thirdly, the sword signifies God's righteousness. In Lamentations 3.42, it says, We have transgressed and rebelled. You, God, have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and have pursued us. You have slain. You have not spared. To slay is to slay with a sword. And this was due to transgression and rebellion. And then in Romans 2.5, it says, But according to your hardness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's righteous judgment is to slay. The sword here signifies the righteousness of God. So you have the glory of God, the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God excluding man from the tree of life. These three things were violated when man fell through sin. And that leads us to Roman numeral 2. Let's all read Roman numeral 2 Out loud together, go. The helpless and hopeless condition of mankind under the condemnation of God's righteous judgment. So this is the situation. After the fall, after partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, being poisoned by the satanic nature, man is now in a helpless and hopeless condition under the condemnation of God's righteous judgment. And brothers, I, I put this point first, the totality of hopelessness. I didn't want to beat around the bush, but let's just get straight to the point. <laughs> the totality of hopelessness. The hopelessness of man is, is total. Um, we have this verse from Ezekiel 18.4. It says, the soul who sins, he shall die. In, actually, in Romans six. We could have put this here, Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death. What's more hopeless than death, right? Some people, we know, they have terminal illnesses. What does that mean? It's hopeless. There's no no cure. There's no way to save them. Uh, They're headed for death, and that's going to be the end, right? Well, anyways, this brings us now to the book of Romans... And we have a few selected verses from chapter 1, 2, and 3 here to emphasize the totality of hopelessness under God's righteous judgment. In Romans 1.32, look at that. It says, Though fully knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Well, here in chapter 1, people were practicing unseemly things, terrible things. And the point here is that they are worthy of death. Actually, all the practices just come out of the sin nature, the evil nature that poisoned man during the fall. Then in Romans 2, For there is no respect of persons of... With God. You know what? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your upbringing is, how much money you have, wh- whether you're born of a king or a pauper. It doesn't matter who you are. God is not a respecter of persons. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. Are you under law? Maybe not. Well, the judgment's the same. Perish. And it goes on, As many as have sinned under the law shall be judged by the law. This is the the sentence. You shall perish. And then chapter 3, Even as it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. You think you have some sort of righteousness in yourself? You've done some righteous deeds? Uh, Well, according to the Bible... Whatever kind of righteousness you can muster up in yourself is filthy rags to God. It's filthy rags. You know, God is judging us according to his standard of righteousness. His standard is way up here, up to the ceiling, up to the heavens. He says, Salem, you need to jump 200 feet. He doesn't lower the bar and say, well, I know you're a little man, you're fallen, you're sinful, you can only jump two feet, so I'll lower the bar. No, he doesn't do that. He judges us according to his standard of righteousness. And according to his standard, there is none righteous, not even one. And then in Romans 3, 19 and 20 and 23... It says, now we know that whatever things the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. You know, God God just says, shut up. You have no accusation. You can say nothing. Don't even try to give an excuse. Nothing. Just shut up. Every mouth shall be stopped. And all the world may fall under the judgment of God. This is God's word. (laughs) Because out of the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified before him. For through the law is the clear knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So mankind is in a helpless and hopeless condition. Under God's righteous judgment. Um. And the poisonous nature within has violated God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's glory. So, if it's up to us, you know what? We, we're hopeless. We have no way. But, praise the Lord. Now's the time not to look at ourselves and what we can do, but to look at Christ, right? Look at Christ. Uh, the first step, though, to being delivered is to acknowledge our condition. Isn't that what they tell people in Alcoholics Anonymous? You have to acknowledge, I am an alcoholic. Brothers and sisters, I am a constitution of sin, and I'm in a helpless and hopeless condition. And so are you, right? This is our condition. Only God's redemption can rescue us uh, from this helpless condition. And uh, now, since we in this room, um, probably for the most part, I hope, uh, we've all uh, received God's redemption. um, You know, the, the way to receive God's redemption is very simple. It's just a matter of faith. We hear what he's done. We hear the good news faith gets imparted into us, and we exercise that faith to respond and say, amen, I believe. You may not realize this, but that's what happened with Adam and Eve. You know, after they fell, surely they thought they were going to die. God told Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. So they ate of that tree And what did they do? They went and hid. They hid themselves, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God came. He said, where are you, Adam? Surely he thought he was going to die. But instead of killing him, what did God do? God announced the glad tidings. God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve. First of all, he cursed the serpent, and then he began to tell uh, Eve that that this woman is going to have a seed, a descendant that's going to come and crush that serpent's head. And when Adam and Eve heard this, you know what Adam did? He turned to his wife, and he said, Eve. He called her name Eve. You know what Eve means, sisters? Living. Living. We're not going to die. Living. We heard the gospel. We heard the, the glad tidings, the good news. This woman is going to have a seed, have a descendant that's going to crush and deal with this, this evil serpent. Living. <laughs> that means they believed. They believed God. And then the very next phrase, listen, the very next phrase after Adam turned to his wife and called her name Eve, which means living. It says, God clothed them with the skins of some animals. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of redemption. Instead of you dying, these animals died in your place. And you are now covered with the skins of those animals... Which, in the New Testament, we see that those skins represent the objective righteousness of Christ covering us. So now, when we hear the gospel, faith gets imparted into us, and we believe, and we receive, we appropriate the redemption of Christ simply by believing. By faith, we appropriate the redemption of Christ. And so now, God doesn't see a sinner anymore. When he looks at Trevor Walker, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees Christ. Because you're clothed with Christ. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So, anyways, in, in this room, hopefully we've we've all received God's redemption. If you haven't received his redemption yet, it's very simple. Uh, and we hope that you will before this night is over. Uh, so, but anyways. Having said that, why do we need to spend time now getting into the wickedness mentioned in Romans chapter 1? Well, there's a number of reasons that we would get into this. First of all, it's the Word of God. And we don't uh, want to skip over portions of the Word or cut out things from the Bible. We just take the Word for what it is. And it's good to read the Word and read it sequentially and and get all the facts, right? (laughs) Also... Uh, to get an increased knowledge of ourselves, you see, this is why we need to spend some time to get into the depths here. We need to know ourselves um, and, uh, and our fallen condition. And this should, in turn, cause us to appreciate more the tremendous price that God in Christ paid for us uh, for our, to redeem us. Uh, Also, it helps us to better understand the nature of today's society Uh, so that we would have no illusions of bringing in a kind of utopia or um, of people improving in their basic nature. You know what? That basic nature is not going to improve. There's so many, even it's sad, you go into a Christian bookstore today and and there's whole shelves on self-help books. How to improve yourself. But the fallen nature is hopeless. It's hopeless. Don't try to improve yourself. Gain Christ. <laughs> Anyways, this is why we need to see. And then also, until we're saved as young people, and even after we're saved, there is the need of restriction and preservation. And, uh, <clears throat> and that's why on your outline in point D... We have the way of restriction and protection from every kind of evil. These are just some points that we can glean from reading these early chapters in Romans. Uh, And then also, uh, in addition to this, what's mentioned in Romans 1, it not only shows our helpless and hopeless condition, uh, but it also shows us God that He is righteous And he condemns sin and wickedness, and he expects that we would agree with him uh, in his righteous condemnation. So, uh, these are just a few reasons why we would want to spend the first message tonight to get into all these negative things in Romans 1. So, let's go now to point B. Let's read point B together. The source of wickedness and its result the source of wickedness and its result. <clears throat> uh, in Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They hold down the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, <clears throat> well, this, you could say, is the first element of the source of wickedness in Romans 1. It's holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Let me ask you this. What is truth? What is truth? It says they're holding down the truth in unrighteousness. What is truth? Well, truth is reality. Truth is solid. Truth is substantial. Truth is God Himself. God himself is the prime reality in this universe. He is substantial. He's solid. uh, He is real. You know, to say that there is no God is to speak vanity. It's just vanity. But to speak concerning God is to speak something solid. To speak something substantial. Something real. Um, You know, I've, I've been on the campus... Uh, serving there, meeting students over the years for uh, quite a long time. And sometimes I come across someone who, uh, <clears throat> you know what they say? They say something like, My, uh, <clears throat> you know, I can't substantiate God. Show me God if He's real. If God is real, just show Him to me. But you know what? You can't show Him to me, so He's not real. But what's real to me, I have my reason, I have my logic, that's real. And if I can't logically reason about God and substantiate God, then He's not real. Well, let me tell you something. You just give it a few decades, and your reason is going to be gone. You're going to have dementia, you're going to have Alzheimer's, something like that. Your reasoning's going to be gone. Eventually, you're going to be six feet under. So what you thought was solid and substantial and trustworthy, it's over, it's gone, it's finished, but God is still here. God is the prime reality. Some people will say, you know what? I don't know about God. All I know is just day in and day out, I'm here working hard to get a degree so that I can go into that career, so that I can have a job and make money, and my job, that's substantial, that's real, that's solid. I can hold on to that. I get up every morning uh, and go to work 8 to 5. That's real to me. That's substantial. Well, you know what? Next week, your job is over. The company folds. The government administration changes, and they don't need that department anymore. It's over. It's finished. You can't put any trust in your job, in your career, in your education. Some people, you know, in Austin, Texas... It's one of the most educated populations in the United States. And you have people with master's degrees and PhDs working at McDonald's and so forth. They thought their degree was real and solid and substantial uh, to end up in this career path and that job and so forth. Guess what? It's over. But God is still here. Real, solid, substantial. And here... Uh, holding down the truth in unrighteousness uh, from the very beginning. The Apostle Paul shows us in chapter 1 there uh, that mankind did not respect the reality of God, but suppressed it. They simply did not care for this reality, but refused to hold it in a proper way. They held down the truth in unrighteousness. You know, creation itself is testifying that there is God, right? There's a verse in the Psalms that says the heavens are pouring forth speech day and night. And and here in Romans one twenty it says the things made by God are expressing the divine characteristics of God and His eternal power. Um, So if someone comes along and says, you know what, there's... you know, I'm a biology major. I've studied biology and life science and the environment and the, and the plants and the animals and, and uh, I don't believe in God. We would have to say, that's not fair. Creation is testifying. Speech is being poured forth day and night from the heavens. There is God. That's unrighteous. To say there is no God, that's unrighteous. That's why it says here they're holding down the truth. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Let's go to the next point. Romans 121. It says, Because though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or thank Him. Well, refusing to glorify God, refusing to thank God, refusing to worship God, to serve God, this is a major source of wickedness. <clears throat> and, um, and we need to realize that glorifying God, thanking God, worshiping God, serving God, all these things uh, are extremely important. Brothers and sisters, that's what we were made for, right? To glorify God. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. The next point, Romans one twenty-five, it says, Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. Uh, <clears throat> well, it's a terrible thing to exchange God. Um, you know, God, God is the glory of the universe. To exchange God means to give him up for something else. That's what it means to exchange God. To give up God for something else. And the people here they, in chapter 1 of Romans, they gave up God for idols. God is glory. Idols are vanity. How could they give up God for idols? And you might say, well, come on, we live in the United States of America. First... A first world, right? (laughs) Industrialized, uh, first-rate country. We don't worship idols here. I've never seen anybody bow down and worship a statue of gold or stone or wood. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, many people in this country serve idols. Um, Self-made idols. Such as their future, their positions... Their degrees, their goals, their dreams, all these things have become idols. They have come in uh, and been exchanged for God, in place of God. In place of God now, I have my future. In place of God, I have my dreams, my goals, my position. So they care for these things, and they don't care for God. That's idolatry. That's exchanging God. And then the fourth point here, if you look at Romans 128a, it says, and even as they did not approve of holding God in their their full knowledge. Well, although mankind at that time, they knew God, they knew there was God, they tested God, they tried God, And eventually they decided not to hold him in their full knowledge. They disapproved of holding God in their full knowledge. You know, most of you all are college students. You have professors. You know, there's a lot of professors and professional people. They know there's God, but they disapprove of holding God in their full knowledge. Well, if we uh, carefully consider these four aspects of the source of wickedness, we'll see that they constitute the origin of every kind of evil and sinfulness. Uh, This is the situation in the world. This is the situation in the society that we live in. It's an age of wickedness. And... Peter says, we need to be saved from this crooked generation. How do you get saved from this crooked generation? Let's see what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 and 41. He says, be saved from this crooked generation. Those then who received his word were baptized. Baptism is the way to be saved from this crooked generation. We're in the midst as redeemed ones. We're here on the earth in, a, in the midst of wickedness. A wicked generation. People who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People who disapprove of holding God in their full knowledge. <clears throat> they, uh, they don't worship God or, or thank Him. They exchange God for other things. We're surrounded by this in society. Praise the Lord. We can... We can uh, be saved from this crooked generation by baptism. And I hope, I hope there's a way to do some baptisms this weekend, right? Brothers, I know it's cold out there, but you can warm up water, right? <laughs> We're planning to do some baptisms. If you're, being, if you're touched in this weekend to be baptized, to be separated from this crooked generation, um, we have a way to do that this weekend. Now, let's go on to point C. Point C says the satanic lie versus the divine truth. Now, listen, all the previous points really have to do with man who is poisoned with the satanic nature, man suppressing the truth, man not worshiping God or thanking God, man exchanging God, man not approving of holding God in full knowledge. But we need to see further tonight that the source is Satan himself. He's the ultimate wicked one in this universe. And he is versus the divine truth. So, under number one, the satanic lie, these are some verses from Ezekiel 28 which refer to Lucifer, Satan himself. You have... Uh, You were the anointed cherub. You know, a cherub is a kind of angelic being. Lucifer was the top archangel, ordained by God to lead the entire creation in worship to God. You were the anointed cherub who covered the ark. Indeed, I set you so that you were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. He's the source of unrighteousness. You want to talk about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness? Satan himself is the source of unrighteousness. And then in Ezekiel 28, 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Talk about not glorifying God. He glorified Himself. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He became proud. He glorified Himself. And then Isaiah 14, another passage dealing and exposing Lucifer. But you, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will exalt my throne. And I will sit upon the mount of the assembly in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Exchanging God? Yeah, he gave God up for something else. He gave God up for himself. I'm going to be God. Guess what, God? I'm God now. I will be the one on the throne. I will make myself like the Most High. He exchanged God for himself. And then this next verse in Exodus, it's not explicitly uh, dealing with Satan, but it's Pharaoh, but we know that Pharaoh signifies Satan here in Exodus as the prince of the world. And look what the prince of the world said. He said, Who is Jehovah that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Jehovah, and I also will not let Israel go. What kind of a haughty, proud remark is that? I do not know Jehovah. The very one who created this angelic being, you know what? He says, I do not know Jehovah. Disapproving of holding God in his full knowledge. He's the source. And what's the result? Well, the result with the people... I forgot to read those verses in Romans 1. God gave them up, right? Under point B. God gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up to passions of dishonor. God gave them up to a disapproved mind. Well, here was Satan... In Ezekiel 28, 16, By the abundance of your trading, they filled your midst with violence, and you sinned, so I cast you out as profane. That's the result of this wickedness. We see the source of wickedness, and we see the result of wickedness. God gives up. Gives them up. God cast him out as profane. And I want to say one other thing here, and that is that the lake of fire was not prepared for man. It says here in Matthew 25, 41, the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not prepared for man. God had no intention that any man would end up in the lake of fire. He has prepared a redemption. And we'll see later this redemption was prepared from the foundation of the world. Man just has to receive it. Just receive this redemption. God does not desire anyone to end up in a lake of fire but if if someone does not receive appropriate by faith God's redemption then God has no choice he continues to be joined to Satan and when God views that person he's viewed as a sinner he's not viewed in Christ and will end up with the same destiny as the devil and his angels. That is the eternal fire. Now, I want to labor a little bit more on this point. In Ezekiel 28, 16, it says, By the abundance of your trading, they filled your midst with violence and you sinned. The root, the Hebrew root for the word trading here is also used in the word for scandalmonger, slanderer, talebearer, we need to see that this is what Satan does he slanders, he accuses, he gossips, he tells tales. How did Lucifer manage to persuade one third of the angels to follow him? in his rebellion no doubt he was going to and fro whispering about god sowing seeds of disaffection concerning god isn't that what he did with eve he came to eve and the first thing he did was he questioned god did god really say that did god really say that question mark and then he made eve feel like God was withholding something from her God knows that in the day you eat of that tree you're going to be like God knowing good and evil so he was questioning God he was accusing God slandering God, misrepresenting God, sowing seeds of disaffection toward God and in doing this Going to and fro as a talebearer, a secret agitator, sowing seeds of disaffection, he alienated the loyalty of the angels, and one- third of them followed him in his rebellion. In Leviticus 1916, the same word is used as tailbearer, a slanderer, making insinuations, false accusations. Of course, we know in Revelation 12.10, he's actually called the accuser of the brethren. In Proverbs 20.19, <clears throat> talebearing is associated with flattery to convert others to one's cause. In Jeremiah 6.28 and Ezekiel 22.9, the same word is translated as slanderer. He slandered God's name. He is a person who goes to and fro using flattery to sow disaffection, to misrepresent authority... And he's doing the same thing today in us. The same thing. You know, of course, with the unbelievers, he's there sowing seeds of disaffection toward God. But even with believers, sometimes believers can end up in a situation where they don't know if they can trust God anymore. They don't know for sure if they can open to God. They're convinced by some scriptures that God is an evil tyrant. How did they get convinced of that thought? The liar. You know, Satan is a liar. In John 8, he's called the father of lies. He's the source of every lie. He is a liar, a slanderer, an accuser. He wants us to think God, uh, his heart is not good towards us. But brothers and sisters, I have another word tonight. And that is the divine truth. God loves us. God cares for us. You know, I just want to spend a little time on this next point, the divine truth. Because we need to tell out the virtues of him. Who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me tell you something about our God. In The first uh, thing there is just some phrases from Romans 2 and 3. Did you know that His kindness is leading you to repentance? This is Romans 2, 4. It says, or do you despise the riches of His kindness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that God's kindness is leading you to repentance? He wants you to repent, and He's helping you. He's kind to help you to repent, to appropriate His redemption. Praise the Lord! And He's so forbearing and long-suffering. <clears throat> in uh, in Romans two six and seven, it says, "Who will render to each according to his works? To those who by endurance and good works seek glory and honor and incorruptibility, life eternal." He renders life eternal. He's leading us to repent out of his kindness and long suffering and forbearance. And he wants to give us life eternal. And glory and honor and peace. In in verse 10, it goes on. Praise the Lord. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 3, it talks about the faithfulness of God. And in verse 4, it says, Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written that you may be declared righteous and your words may overcome when you are judged he is righteous he is faithful he is true let me tell out some more about this wonderful lord that we have in in jeremiah you know some of you know the bible is a divine romance the bible is a divine romance in, uh, in Isaiah 54, 5, it says, Your maker is your husband. He wants to be married to you. And in Jeremiah uh, 3, 12 through 14, at this point in time, his people, who he prepared to be his own counterpart, fell away from him. They fell into idolatry. He was their husband, but they went after other husbands, other gods. And he says here through Jeremiah, he says, Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, O Israel, the apostate, declares Jehovah, and I will not let my countenance fall toward you, for I am merciful, declares Jehovah. I will not keep my anger forever, only acknowledge your iniquity." That you have transgressed against Jehovah your God and have turned your ways here and there to strangers under every flourishing tree and have not listened to my voice, declares Jehovah. Return, O apostate children, declares Jehovah, for I am a husband to you. I am married to you. And I will take you. What human husband would do that? Your wife goes off with other men. And the husband... Loves you so much that he would say, only acknowledge your iniquity and I will take you back. Return to me. I'm married to you. I love you. This is our God. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the liar, the slanderer, the accuser. This is God. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You know what lowly means? He doesn't just come down to our level. He comes beneath our level, under us, to lift us up. He's lowly. Could you believe the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, is lowly and meek? You know, I've often considered this verse in... that Moses wrote, uh, I forget exactly which book in the Pentateuch it is, but he said, Moses was the meekest of all men. But did you know that in Exodus, God told Moses that Moses would be God to the people? Moses was God's representative authority on the earth. But Moses was the meekest of all men. This is God. Lowly, meek, loving, kind, leading us to repentance. In Philippians 2, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus... Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider being equal with God a treasure to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becoming in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, and that the death of a cross. This is the mind of our God. You know, it it says, who, existing in the form of God... Did not consider being equal with God a treasure to be grasped, grasped, but he emptied himself. That's the exact opposite of Satan, right? Lucifer did not exist in the form of God, but he considered being equal with God a treasure to be grasped. He said, I will be like the Most High. But that's not the way God is, right? Brothers and sisters, you know, Romans is a book on the gospel, the gospel of God. Uh, We need to be equipped to tell out the virtues of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we speak the things concerning our wonderful God, incarnated as Lord Jesus, died for us, resurrected as the Spirit, ready and available to be dispensed into whoever would repent and believe. As we speak these things, faith gets imparted into people. People don't have faith. No one is born with faith. But Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We have to be those speaking. We have to be the mouthpiece for the tree of life. You know, unfortunately, back in Genesis 3, the tree of knowledge had a mouthpiece. But the tree of life didn't. But today, we can be the representatives of the tree of life. We can tell out the virtues of our God who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And as we do, there's the hearing of faith. Faith gets imparted and that person who told you they're an unbeliever, they don't believe that stuff, because you spoke faith into them, now they believe. Now they substantiate the reality of all the things you're speaking to them. It's too marvelous. You know, just a couple other points here. The ten plagues. I was, I've been reading through the Life Study of Exodus and actually some of the churches are going through Exodus now. Do you know those ten plagues? you, You might think initially, oh, that's God's judgment on Egypt. Egypt deserved this judgment for holding God's people in slavery. But actually those ten plagues were God's merciful warnings. On the one hand, he was exposing the world for his people to see that they would want to get out of that place. But also, he was warning the Egyptians in a merciful way. Just gradually, the plagues you know, kept getting stronger and stronger. Uh, it was a merciful warning. Uh, <clears throat> Another thing, just to say about our God. You know, God sent Jonah to Nineveh to extend his salvation to the Gentiles. You realize Jonah could not tolerate the thought that God would actually extend his salvation to the Gentiles. So he ran away. And eventually he was on board a ship and got thrown over and got swallowed by a fish and spit up on the shore. And finally he decided to do what God told him to do. And he went to Nineveh. And his gospel really wasn't much of a gospel at all he just said repent or in 40 days god's going to overturn this city and the people of nineveh repented that's how kind and merciful and generous and our god is amen well i want to make another plug for baptism right here we need to put off the lie. Ty, we need to put off the lie. Amen. There's a liar. His name is Satan. He's been lying for years, for decades. And in Ephesians 4, 22 and 25, let me read these verses. It says that you put off as regards your former manner of life, the old man, which is being corrupted according to the lusts of the deceit. Therefore, having put off the lie. Well, the lie here refers to anything that is false in nature. Because we have put off the old man, we also put off everything that is false in nature. And in verse 22, this word deceit, it says, Put off, as regards your former manner of life, the old man, which is being corrupted according to the lusts of the deceit. The article here is emphatic, and the deceit is personified. Hence, the deceit refers to the deceiver, Satan, from whom come the lusts of the corrupted old man. In baptism, we put off the old man. Our old man was crucified with Christ and was buried in baptism. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. Well, praise the Lord, your parents consecrated to you, consecrated you to the Lord when you were born. That's wonderful, but you might not, and probably were not, conscious that God even existed at that time. Maybe you were baptized 10 years ago um, because everyone else was doing it, or because you had some pressure from family or friends. But if you have succumbed to the liar, you know, Satan comes, he sows seeds of disaffection. Maybe a seed came in five years ago, ten years ago. It's been developing. It's been growing. Now there's a mountain, there's a fortress of reasonings against God. Not trusting God. Not opening to Him. Not willing to even give Him a crack. You're not making any progress in your Christian life? Put off the lie. Put off the lie. Be buried with Christ in baptism. Right When you go into the water... The old man goes in and is buried and is washed down the drain and ends up in the river, which ends up in the ocean at the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) But you know what? The new man rises up to walk in newness of life. Anyways, we need to be baptized. Okay, that brings us to point D, the way of restriction and protection from every kind of evil. Well, these points mainly are just the opposite of the source of wickedness. Uh, but there's a little something more we can add here. Uh, one says, knowing God by his creation. Here's the verse that I mentioned earlier. Um, that which is known of God is manifested, manifest within them, for God manifested it to them. For the invisible things of Him, both His eternal power and divine characteristics, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being perceived by the things made, so that they would be without excuse. Well, creation itself is testifying. There is God. Someone once asked Albert Einstein whether he believed that God existed or not. He replied, your question is an insult to me. How could a scientist such as I not believe in God? If you study science, it will tell you there is God. There is God. I mean, you just consider just your own, the way you were made. Look, your mouth is not in between your eyes. Your ears aren't under your nose. I mean, everything is so perfectly placed and planned. Let me read a sentence here about the human eye. The eye is such a brilliant arrangement of shape-shifting lens, aperture-adjusting iris, and light-sensitive image surface of exquisite sensitivity, all housed in a sphere that can shift its aim in a hundredth of a second and send megabytes of information to the visual cortex every second for years on end. Try creating something like that in the lab. That's just one thing, the human eye. Anyways, the point is that, (laughs) oh, Lord, we just have to thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are my creator. You made me in such a wonderful way. <clears throat> when we see God in the beauties and wonders of His creation, we have to worship and glorify Him. Knowing God by His creation is the first aspect of the way of restriction from evil. Then there's holding the truth in righteousness versus hold, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, right? How about this? Obeying the laws of nature. Um, <clears throat> Well, you know, the original nature, our original human nature, as created by God, was good. Of course, our nature got poisoned by the fall. There's no doubt about this. Uh, But nevertheless, as human beings, we have a nature which God created good, and we need to act according to it. We should take heed to this nature. Although you may argue that it's not wrong to steal from others, the nature within you protests whenever you are tempted to steal. Am I right? Have you been tempted to steal before? But the nature within protests. Now here, Romans 2, 14-15, Paul says that when the nations who do not have the law practice the things of the law they prove that the function of the law is written in their heart. The law of God has a function in our nature. In other words, our nature corresponds to God's law because our nature was made by God. So, to be restricted and protected from evil, we need to, uh, as it says here, obey the laws of nature. And uh, that even goes along with our conscience, the next point. Listening to the conscience, caring for proper reasoning. Well, our conscience, <clears throat> uh, okay, this is a very important point. Our conscience is a container for faith. In 1 Timothy 1.19, it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, concerning which some, thrusting these away, have become shipwrecked regarding the faith. Our conscience is a holder for faith. If we don't take care of our conscience, what does that mean? To take care of your conscience means when your conscience is bothering you because you offended God or you offended somebody, you have to repent. You have to apologize, confess. Your conscience is bothering you, so you have to, what? Some people say, get it off your chest, right? John, you need to apologize to your wife sometimes, right? You offended her. We have to apologize to God. We have to confess to God. God, I'm sorry I did this. I said that. I thought this. When we take care of our conscience, we're being protected and restricted from evil. But if we don't take care of our conscience, what happens? That gives Satan the ground to come and accuse us. And his accusations are like poking holes in the container for faith. And all of our faith and boldness will leak away. And we'll become a person who is shipwrecked regarding the faith. And I've met people like this on the UT campus. They told me when I was younger, I was a strong believer. I would even go door knocking and preach the gospel and so forth, but now I don't even believe in God. What happened? Faith leaked away. It leaked away. We have to take care of our conscience. <clears throat> okay, this brings us to the last point. Um, the crucial need of God's redemption, Roman numeral three. Uh, I already mentioned in point A, the redemption of Christ being out of the counsel of the Godhead in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. So now God can view The whole world through the redemption of Christ. And then B says the process of the triune God accomplishes judicial redemption and releases the organic element for his organic salvation. This process involves incarnation, God becoming a man, to bring the infinite God into the finite man and to unite and mingle the triune God with the tripartite man. And then his human living. He lived a perfect human life without sin for 33 and a half years. Expressing in his humanity the bountiful God. In his rich attributes through his aromatic virtues. And then how about his death by crucifixion. To terminate, redeem, create, release, and lay a foundation. And then he resurrected on the third day. To become God's firstborn son. The life-giving spirit. And to regenerate his believers. And then he ascended, and he was enthroned, and then he was outpoured as the Spirit upon all flesh. In his ascension, he was made both Lord and Christ, so that he could pour himself upon his believers for the producing of the church. Well, some of these steps here will be unfolded as the weekend continues this conference. Uh, How about we end by all reading point C together. Go. God's judicial redemption accomplished by Christ's death satisfies God's righteous requirements and clears the way for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose through His organic salvation. Amen. Okay. Um, I think we'll stop here. And we have some time, a little time, if you all want to come up to the mics and have a little overflow.